0: Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you all for for coming out. And uh, we are going to be jumping back into Colossians. So, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 1.
1: What a great passage. If you love the Lord Jesus, (laughs) is going to be great as just a great reminder of who he really is and the night i would say if this is something that maybe you don't know for sure maybe um whether you it's hard to tell whether you know him or not this will be a great night to hear just another one of paul's just masterpiece on on who christ is papa was talking about maybe john one and hebrews one and colossians one might be three of the best passages on who our Lord Jesus is. I just got to say this um, before, and I do not say this often enough, but I really appreciate Mark and and Scott and Greg. We've been able to spend a little bit more time together in the summer. And uh, man, I love you. I appreciate your guys' faithfulness. Love, deep love for the Lord. Um, Example that you set for each of us, your friendship. And so thank you guys for, for this. And I just I just think before we get to heaven how could it get better than this uh to be with you guys to be able to talk um about the lord jesus who we love deeply but we want to love more and uh to be with you all who um just are such a uh, desire to love christ more so i think tonight let's pray as a greg would you pray and then mark if you would kind of introduce some things. Greg, if you would pray for us, and let's all pray that the Lord would do surgery on our hearts with this incredible passage. Yeah, let's pray.
2: Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the privilege to study your word. Lord, in particular, this passage in Colossians 1, uh, which is so packed with wonderful truth about our Savior, who he is, and What he has done for us. Uh, Lord, few passages, if any, have this much packed into them. And I pray, Lord, that you will open our eyes to see what is here. Lord, open our ears to hear you speak through your word. Lord, open our hearts to understand, to cherish, to receive, and to live out the things that we see tonight. Lord, help us up here to faithfully unpack the riches of this treasure. And um, Lord, wow, we just are so grateful uh, for this. And I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts to help us see that Christ alone is worthy of honor and glory and praise. Lord, convict us if we have been boasting in ourselves, making a big deal about ourselves. Lord, as we see in this passage, it is all about Christ. And I pray you will just draw all our hearts to him more and more through our time together tonight. And we ask this in his name. Amen.
0: Amen. And as we jump in, I would, I would like to ask Scott to read all of the first 23 verses. The reason for that is because, it, you know, when we preach through paragraphs at a time, it can, we can lose the flow of what's happening in the letter. So, Scott, could you read the first 23
3: yeah, verses? Just real quick, just because I can't let Jerry off the hook by turning the tables <laughs> on us, I gotta turn it back to him just real quick before I embrace it, but we're all, would say, we're so thankful for this brother, and I think everybody in this room is thankful for this guy and his, his friendship, his love, his joy and the Lord, so I'll keep it at that, but we're so thankful for you, Jerry. Uh, all right, Colossians 1, uh, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, By the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God. and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." So
0: if you remember, last week we said that the way this church started was not by Paul directly. Paul was preaching in Ephesus about 120 miles away, and what happened? A guy was converted, named Epaphras, under Paul's ministry, and he traveled up the Meander River, remember, up to Colossae, where his hometown was. And he was a new, relatively recent convert, and he led people to Christ in his hometown, and he's responsible for the starting of the church there, and probably for the church in Laodicea and Hierapolis as well. If you turn to chapter 4 of Colossians, look at verses 12 and 13, again, describing the founder of the church, Epaphras. 412, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, that's the Colossians, and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Now just pause here, he starts that church in the early to mid-50s AD, this letter is being written. Best guess, around sixty or sixty one AD. So this is a few years after the church has started. The reason why that should matter is is this. So you remember at the end of the book of Acts, Paul, remember he's taken forever, but he's finally he's been in prison and he's finally being taken to Rome. Remember, and he's on that shipwreck and he finally gets to Rome. That's how Acts ended. Paul was proclaiming the gospel under house arrest in Rome. Well, during those two years, we think the argument is strong that he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during those two years in Roman imprisonment, waiting for his trial before uh, Nero Caesar. And this means, I'll get this, this is the part that, that makes immediate application to our lives. Paul has just said that Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This guy is struggling, I think the NIV used to say, he's wrestling in prayer for you. Uh, he, he is agonizing, he is, he's working hard for you guys. He wants you to be mature. Well, the evidence that that is absolutely true is that when an error started arising in the Colossian church, and we'll talk about it a little bit tonight, especially over the next couple weeks, it'll come up in chapter two, but the error isn't perfectly clear. It's, you have to kind of do some mystery, it's kind of like a, you gotta put the, the evidence together to figure out what the problem is. But whatever the problem exactly was, it seems as though there was starting to be a belief That Jesus was good and you shouldn't ignore Jesus, but Jesus was not sufficient. He was not all you need. All the fullness is not in Christ. It's in Jesus plus other things added to Jesus to get you all the way to what you need spiritually. And when Epaphras finds out, he's in the church, error is coming in. Whether it was direct or it was more, uh, you know, a little bit more indirect, whatever it was, this philosophy, this false teaching is coming into the church. And Epaphras goes, I don't have what it takes to deal with this on my own. I need help. I'm going to go back to the guy who led me to Christ, Paul. And right now, Paul happens to be hundreds and hundreds of miles away in Rome. So Epaphras leaves Colossae, heads up the Meander River, gets on another boat, leaves near the Ephesus port, and heads all the way hundreds of miles to Rome. Or he may have taken the road. We don't know if he sailed or or walked. But either way, he travels hundreds of miles. Why? hundreds of miles in the ancient world just to go see Paul so that he can talk face-to-face with Paul, explain the error in the church that is developing, and so that he can personally get Paul to tell him how to respond to it, and then Paul himself writes the letter. And we know he was with Paul because he says, Epaphras greets you. Well, that means he's with Paul. Paul is sending the greeting of Epaphras back to this church. So, Epaphras had traveled all the way to Rome, and Paul is now able to understand exactly what's going on. Paul writes an inspired letter to respond to it and he sends Epaphras back to deal with this error. This shows you genuine Christian love and concern. It's not about being holier than thou, it's not about beating someone up because you think you've got better doctrine. This is when error is actually hurting your friends. Doctrinal error is actually hurting people. And he is willing to travel perhaps for months and spends a chunk of his life, I don't know how much that cost, I don't know how he did it, he goes all the way to Rome to get Paul. Why? Because he needs help. And he's willing to do all that because he cares so much for the maturity of the people in that church. So Epaphras should be an inspiration to us on mm-hmm. several levels, but he, he is a model of Christ uh, in, in the little glimpses we get of him here in this letter.
1: Scott, why is that doctrinal error? I mean, I am thinking about what Mark's saying here. Why is that such a big deal? Because we want it to be a big deal at North Avenue, or all churches should want that to be a big deal like it was to, to him.
3: Yeah, I think that Greg should handle that one right now. Greg?
1: Right? we'll come back. <laughs> so <the laughs> exactly question is, what I was saying, Greg. We know, why
3: is to hear the you?
2: doctrinal error yeah, such a big yeah, deal? Yeah,
1: Like, why are we? Because sometimes it has to seem like we're being nitpicky, but
2: yeah, isn't it? Um, it's
1: just so important what Mark's saying here.
2: It's it's important because the only way we draw near to God that we know anything of God, you know, in terms of salvation and a relationship. Um, is through words written on a page. And if God is the author of those words, then what they say and how they say it um, and particular nuances of language matter because that's what God inspired. Um, And so doctrinal error comes in as we're gonna see and they will take one word and twist it to mean something that it doesn't mean and one twisted word could totally upend our entire understanding of the gospel. Um, and one example of that, we'll jump into this one in verse fifteen we will we'll, we'll kind of go through this uh, more uh, bit by bit, but this is it's a it's a good question when he says the firstborn of all creation, okay? What does that word firstborn mean? We typically think it's the firstborn of a family, the first child that a mom and dad have, their're firstborn. Um, and you have was it, I think it was fourth century, a guy named Arius Arius. comes in and says, well that word firstborn must mean that Jesus is a created being. The first created being that God made and then God made everything else through this first created being, the son. Um, And so Arius, the guy comes in, takes one word, one word, that's it, and says Jesus is not eternally God. Um, and so the church has to respond, and we have to say, "Well, what is the scripture actually saying?" This is where you have to do nitpicky, nuanced stuff. What does the word "firstborn" mean um, in Old Testament history? Um, even in the Roman world, "firstborn" was more a term of status than the order in which you came into existence. Um, and so Paul's not even at this point. He, he in verse sixteen, he's going to talk about Jesus as Creator. He's simply making a statement that Jesus has a preeminent, supreme status. Over everything. That's the purpose of the word firstborn. Um, so it can refer to someone who's born first, but it also can refer to someone who might be adopted into a family. Um, someone who's, you know, for whatever reason, an older child dies and the secondborn gets the inheritance. The firstborn is a, a term of status, someone who receives an inheritance, receives the father's authority, the father's money, the father's estate, the father's, you know, anything that was the father's, the firstborn gets that, and so it's a term of status, not a a term saying, you know, well, Jesus was the first created being. Um, And so, we have to be nitpicky like that. We absolutely have to, because if Jesus is not the eternal son of God, then he can't save us from our sins, because he's a created being, and his ability to to absorb the wrath of God and, and receive the wrath of God is limited, and he can only bear a limited amount of God's wrath. The only way he can bear all of God's wrath is because he's eternal. He's both God and man, and because his humanity is joined to his eternal, eternally being God, he can make an infinitely, an infinite payment for our sin. But he can only make an infinite payment if he himself is infinite as God. Otherwise, he can't pay for all our sin. We don't know how much sin he can pay for. Maybe he can pay for two-thirds of it, but that's not enough. We've got to have it all paid for. And it all hinges on, is he created or is he not created? And so, when it comes to doctrinal matters, we have to be, we wanna be humble, we wanna be gracious, we wanna be charitable, but we can't yield an inch. We cannot yield an inch to false doctrine because it will poison the church and it will ultimately uh, completely undermine the gospel, it will completely undermine our view of Christ, our trust in him, our understanding of God's plan of salvation, and so much more.
0: Let me jump off there. So, just take a second, turn to Psalm 89, uh, psalm, it's going to take a second to turn here, but I think it's worth seeing this. Psalm 89 is definitely a messianic psalm. It's dealing with the discouragement when the Davidic kingdom is sort of seeming to fall… have uh, fallen apart with exile. But here… here's is I've got to think this is the text or one of the texts Paul has in mind when he writes Colossians 1 that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Look at Psalm 89, look at verse 26. And if you Let's start with verse 20, just so you know it's talking about David and the Davidic king. Verse 20, I have found David my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him. So can we all see this is about the Davidic king, right? Now look at verse 26. God is saying to the Davidic king, the Messiah, he shall cry to me, you are my father and my God and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn. What does it mean? The next line tells you what firstborn means. The highest of the kings of the earth. Now let me ask you, was David the first king to ever exist in human history? No. Was he even the first king in Israel's history? No. So firstborn makes no sense if you're talking about chronological sequence here for David. David's not the first anything. But he is the firstborn in the sense that the the messianic Davidic son of of God is the highest of the kings of the earth. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. So the, the son of David is Jesus, and Jesus has the status of being above all other kings. He is therefore called the firstborn of all the kings of the earth. This is a status title, it's not about when you were born. So it's not saying Jesus is the first created being, Paul is saying, just like the Davidic king here, Jesus is the king of kings, he's the king above all, he is over all creation because he, as the text will tell us, actually created everything. So we can turn back to Colossians chapter
1: one. Mark, well, you were gonna talk about the, the Jehovah's Witnesses for in an example, um, take this in a, it, and usually it's the person of Christ that's attacked by these heresies often, isn't it?
0: Yes. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. To turn, okay, we've got a couple of passages to look at that are going to be pretty familiar. John chapter 1, we've just got to go there. The opening a section of John's gospel is just so strong and so clear on this. Scott, can you read the first three
3: verses? Yeah. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made."
0: So everything that was made, which means everything that's created, was made by the Word, by Jesus. Which means the Word was not created, right? So if everything that was made was made by him, he was not something that was made. He made everything that was made. He himself was not made. So he was in the beginning with God. He's distinguished from God the Father, but He's also one in nature with God. He is… He, is he, uh, he Himself is God. And if you look at verse uh, 14, the Word became flesh, so God the Son took on a body and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So Jesus is the one who has made known the Father, and that, that's where we get the word exegesis from in the Greek word there. Yeah, the, the Son is the one who exegetes, who is the one who explains and shows us who the Father is, because Jesus said, if you've
3: seen me, you've also seen the Father. Yeah. No. I mean, just going back to Jerry's question, it takes me a while to like get, get the gears going. One of the things I would say about that, in terms of if we should care about other people, care about error, uh, I was thinking we should we should cultivate this pastoral concern for people. And I think Epaphras is just exemplifying that that model of just pastoral care. And I think even like, you want people to be growing and thriving, and Paul's praying that they would grow, and you see people going into things that are, even, I'm just thinking even resources that are not as helpful, like weak theologically, and you just want to get them away from that, out of love for them, because you want people to be growing and thriving, and you want them to be going to the best resource. I think this is, it's love for that person, because you care so deeply about them. You want to see them growing and thriving spiritually, so if any kind of error is there, you're gonna be grieved as Epaphras was grieved, and I I think that's the loving thing to do, is get them out of that error and bring them back to truth. And you think. I just think of, of my upbringing. I, I was—we were so blessed to have rich theology. Like I knew all these names, just like being in the home that we were in. And it's like it was a jump start to my faith because I had all of this rich doctrine. And if, if we can just get people with rich doctrine, it would just help them, you know, thrive. And that's what—that's what we want to do: is help people thrive. We don't want to see people drifting.
1: That's great. Verse sixteen: For by this is something. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and we saw that in in john 1. greg
2: thoughts on 16. um i've drawn some of this from vody bacham i won't be able to say it quite as well as he did but people will come and, and, and you said this correctly like most cults most false teachings will get jesus wrong the doctrine of salvation wrong, or the doctrine of God wrong. Those three points of emphasis, they, they go horribly astray. Um, and if someone comes to you and they try to say, well, Jesus was created, um, the Jehovah's Witness, they actually have their own Bible, the New World Translation, and they actually, they change what verse 16 says. You know, it says rightly in our translations, where you got ESV, NIV, NASB, whatever, for by him all things were created. The Jehovah's Witness add a word. They say for by him all other things were created. One, that's just not in the original language at all, um, so that's just a false statement, but if you happen not to know something like that, just walk through the passage. For by him everything was created, in heaven and on earth. So you've got two spheres here, the heavenly realm, the earthly realm. Someone says, well, he just created what we can see, you know, he's unseen, so he was, well, invisible, visible and invisible. Like, the, the invi- what we can't see, what we can see, everything was created by Jesus. And that's what you need to hammer that point on. <laughs> um, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, anyone with any authority anywhere in the universe was created by Jesus. So he can't be in the category of created because he's the one who created everything in that category. So all things were created through him and for him. Um, and I, I think this has, might have a dual reference here because remember, we talk about Jesus, he's the Messiah, he's also the eternal son of God. So when God created the world, he had, um, he had in view the eternal son of God, I think, becoming man and one day taking up that Davidic kingship by which he would reign and rule over the world. Um, And so everything that was created was created for Christ. I mean, that's huge. We don't have time to exhaust the potential of that. But he made everything and it was made for him. So it's not just in a generic sense for the glory of God, it is, it's also for the glory of Jesus. And so we have to, to ponder, what does that mean that it was created for him? God had a view to redemption, to salvation, even when he created the world and before sin came in, that'll mess with your head but that's clearly what the text is saying. Um, God had a view of the second Adam, the son of David, ruling and reigning over a renewed creation that he redeemed through his own blood, the people that he sanctified and saved, uh, that he made his own, secured them forever. God had that in view, so everything was made ultimately with a view to serve Christ.
0: Yeah, this is great. Let's hold your spot here and turn to to the right to Hebrews chapter 1. I think there's some parallels again in this passage. These are some of the most uh, Christ-exalting texts that we have in all of Scripture because they're so strong and so clear on the person of Jesus. Hebrews just comes right out of the gates, and it's similar to Colossians. It's it's kind of this idea of people thinking of Jesus competing with angels. Like, who's greater here? Because Jesus was a man, and angels seem greater. And so, how are we supposed to think about Christ? And the author of Hebrews… makes it pretty clear. But look, look at the first verses of Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and listen to this, and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. But you have here, Jesus is the exact, how does the word say it, imprint of God's nature. But you, you cannot say anything higher about the person of Jesus than to say he is the exact imprint of God's nature. All that is true of the nature of God the Father is true of nature of God the Son. The, the, there is a perfect correspondence here. They are, they are equal in eternity, equal in creation. And so, thoughts about that passage there?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that this passage, different people talked about how it should take our breath away when, when you consider Christ like He made everything. I mean, this is, it's, it's staggering to realize this. And it's like from, from the stars in the sky to the smallest insect. Jesus made everything and uh, I'm parting this from different people, but one guy was talking about Earth and he's talking about our sun. Our sun is like an average star, uh, 93 million miles away, I guess Uh, it is. It takes eight minutes and 20 seconds for light to reach us, 186,000 miles per second basically traveling to get here. And this guy said that you could take, I've got to make sure I get it right, Uh, 1.3 million Earths can fit inside the sun and the sun is an average star. And I I had to look up what's the largest star and I'm not going to pronounce it right, but. Uy Scooty is the highest is the biggest, the largest star. This thing is massive. Our, our sun next to this thing looks like a speck. They said you could spit five billion suns inside of this star. I mean it's staggering. And I'm borrowing this from, from a pastor who said, you go to that star, UY Scooty, and you lift you turn it over, and there's a tag on it that says made by Jesus. And you go to the smallest insect in the ground, and you flip over the tag, made by Jesus. I mean, the, the majesty of Jesus is on display. It literally takes your breath away. And one commentator just said, these things are being said about jesus you know 30 years after his death you know how could that be possible he said the resurrection of jesus is how this is possible this is is evidence this is right in the early churches going on they're speaking of jesus in this magnificent way the other thing i would say is you know second corinthians 318 we behold the glory of the lord we're being transformed well the great place to behold the glory of jesus is coming to colossians 1 and just camping out and think like just verse 16 and you will see the majesty of jesus it's i mean it's staggering it should stir worship who, he's reminding the Colossians who Jesus is. Do we realize who Jesus is and his awesome majesty?
1: Yeah, don't you think every time we are outside, we ought to be once again reminded, this is all made by by him, Or, you, people, how amazing uh, the creation is.
0: If you're still in the Hebrews text, I don't know if you're still there, but it says in verse three, let me read that again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And listen, he upholds the universe by the word of His power. So He upholds, he, he sustains the universe by the word of His power. Flip back to Colossians 1 and listen to an almost identical thought in Colossians chapter 1 verse 17. In one seventeen, it says, and He is before all things, so He existed before any of creation existed. He is also sovereign over the rain as well as the thunder. And it says He is before all things and in Him all things hold together or consist, all things hold together. Almost identical. So, in one, in Hebrews 1, he upholds the universe every moment by his word. He speaks the universe not just into existence, but he continues it in existence moment by moment. Here it says, in him all things hold together. And it's like, you remember deism back in the uh, 18th century, I know Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson maybe, some of them were closer to the deistic perspective. The idea was God was very detached from everyday life. And you know, the millennial generation was guilty of moralistic, therapeutic deism, the idea that God is sort of out there somewhere. He may be concerned about the major events of your life, but he's largely detached from how you live day to day. He's just kind of up there somewhere, a happy figure in the sky, not intimately connected to your life. Well, Colossians says Jesus is upholding the universe every moment by his word, which what that would mean is… Literally, what holds the molecules together, what holds everything, all the matter in the world together at every moment is Jesus personally speaking it into existence and, can, and sustaining it, which is, I mean, this is, a, this is a claim that is so staggering. It's so, like, beyond what you can even imagine that what we're basically thinking, of, we, we need to probably turn the speakers up, right? Thank you all for doing that. I'm going to try to outspeak the rain here which Jesus is holding up by the word of his power right now. I mean, seriously, th- this, is, this is not a claim just that generically a God up there is doing something. It's the claim that a man who lived in Galilee in the 30s AD, uh, that he is the one who is actually right now sustaining the world. And so, I, I, I think we're used to sort of speaking generically of God up there. Like, you know, God, we, we, we believe in God. No, no, no. The Galilean carpenter named Jesus of Nazareth, that guy who lived back then, he is right now, according to Scripture, sustaining this building, the, the storm, the clouds outside, our bodies, uh, our, our heartbeat right now is being controlled by him directly. I mean, these are claims that either a madman is making in the Bible or they are actually the truth. But, but it's incredibly radical what's being said here.
2: When it sets it apart, um, what Scripture teaches from deism, because deism basically, I think I just, there we go. Okay. Deism basically says that God kind of wound the world up like a clock stepped back and it's just going on its own. The picture that you're describing is of a God who is intimately involved with every aspect of his creation at every moment. I mean, and, and it's, it, should, it should stagger the limits of our, our imaginations to think, how many molecules are there in existence? How many atoms are there that make up those molecules and you start going subatomic and all… He holds a universe full of that in existence at every moment and not just the things individually, but all that those things are doing woven together in the different structures that they make into our bodies and our blood and water and, and metals and rocks and grasses and, and everything. Like, he he gets it and holds it together at every level at which it exists. Um, that is not a God who is distant. That is not a God who is unconcerned. You know, we wonder, does God care? I mean, if you know, Jesus used the illustration: the birds of the heavens. You know, they don't worry about what they're going to get, and you know, his, your heavenly Father feeds them. I mean, let's expand out. He he keeps molecules in existence. What are molecules? They don't have personalities. They don't. They're they're the building blocks, but he keeps building blocks in existence. He cares about the building blocks because of what those building blocks build. Um, And so you just think about the fact that he holds everything together at every conceivable level. Yes, he cares about you. He cares about your life. He cares about what's going on with you because you are made in his image. Of all that God made, you and me as human beings, we are more of more worth in the sight of God than anything else that He made, and so He holds it all together and takes a special, a special amount of attention on us, and that should just blow our minds.
3: Yeah, let me just what ties into what you're saying, Greg. Let me just read this quote from one, one of the commentators. He said, "All things," talking about verse 17, emphasizing His total sovereignty and complete control over all creation. How encouraging to know that the eternal God who sustains the entire universe is also watching over you. No detail of your life is too small for his concern. No circumstance is too big for his sovereign control. And I just thought the application from 17 would be, it should be an encouragement to pray. Like how, we should take it to God and pray. I mean, he's controlling everything in the universe and we're worried about this small little thing. And we can just, we can take it to We can cast our cares on him. And it, it reminded me of George Mueller, which I, I think of George Mueller in prayer. And I heard this story about him recently that I never heard before. He's he running this orphanage, so, uh, relying on God, never asking anybody for money. So he had all these responsibilities, and somebody came to him and said, "George, like, how are you so joyful? How are you not worried? Like, how are you living like this?" And he said, "Well, th- this morning before breakfast, I rolled sixty things onto the Lord. He just cast sixty things. I mean, it's like, it, I mean how many times have we roll that? In light of this, who Jesus is, we should be casting those things, our cares, upon Him because He cares for us and He's all powerful and in, 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 in control. It should be an encouragement to pray." Well, I think, I want to say, that I think I heard, um, I
2: can't remember where I saw this, but you know, if, if he can hold the molecules and the universe together in language said, do, why should we worry that he can't hold us together in the stuff we're going through? Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he keeps a universe in which we're like infinitesimally small. He holds that together. He can hold us together in the stuff we're going through. So why cast your cares on him? Can he
1: handle it? Yes. Easily. And joyfully so. Puts worry and fear to, to bed in a hurry, we yeah. think like that. Mark, how about 18? All
0: right, verse 18. Oh, let, let me say something real quick about the structure of this. So, verses 15 through 17, basically, are dealing with Jesus being supreme over the physical world and the, and the invisible spiritual world, all that he created. The next section, verses 18 to 20, is his, is his supremacy over the new creation which includes the church and also what's coming, the new heavens and new earth. So, he's supreme over the original creation, he's supreme over the new creation. So new creation starts in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So here in 18, he is the head of the body, the church. First of all, this puts an incredibly high position on the church. Because the supreme being who is the one completely sovereign over the world and over the new creation is the one we are intimately connected with. He is the head of the church. We are part of His body. And so, unbelievably, this is not like a man-centered doctrine. This is just an unbelievably high view of God's people. We're, we're God, the, the church of God is the body of this Christ. He is the head and we are His body. So, it implies that He is sovereign over us, He commands us what to do, He's our our authority, our head. But he also wants what is good for us. He also cares about us. We're gonna hear about his sacrifice for us in just a moment in this text. So, he is our head. We are called to submit to him, to support him. Uh, And so, that's a glorious truth. It says he is the beginning. This is verse 18. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Well, here the word firstborn is used again. It again means the status of being first place. But in this case, he was literally the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. So, just like Romans 8, 29, we're being conformed to his image, the one who was the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the first to be raised. In other words, the new… Okay, see see, see if this makes sense. The tension in the New Testament between Jesus' resurrection and his return, the tension is called the… It's the overlapping of two ages. We have the old era, the era of Adam, the fallen world. We have the new era of the new Adam and the son of God and Davidic king. And the kingdom has come, but it has not come fully. So we call this the already and not yet. So we are already righteous in Christ, and yet we are not yet practically fully righteous ourselves right? We are already sons of God, but it is not yet known to the world that we are the sons of God. That happens at the resurrection, Romans 8 says. It will be fully known. So, there's the already and not yet. In the already and not yet, we have our indwelling sin still remaining in our body of death that tempts us every day to go astray. And yet, we have the Holy Spirit, which is from the new age, within us, empowering us to defeat sin and fight sin. So, we are living in this strange tension of the overlapping of these two ages. We have the body of death from Adam still with us tempting us every day. We have the Holy Spirit from Christ uh, working in us new life to, to, to bring us on to glory. And Jesus' resurrection inaugurates the new age because the first piece of new creation already happened. You're like, the world doesn't look like it's been new- newly created. It hasn't yet. But Jesus' body is the beginning of the new creation. So Jesus inaugurates, he begins the new creation through his resurrection, and that's what it says here, he's the firstborn from the dead. So Jesus is the first part of the new creation, the first to be resurrected. And his resurrection is not just first in chronological order, it's also first is in supremacy because the only way you're gonna rise from the dead, or I'm gonna rise from the dead, is owing to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Right, in Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. If we are united to Christ, we will be raised because he was raised so he's not just first in an order of equals his first resurrection causes all the other resurrections therefore he is supreme over all in the new creation he himself says behold I am making all things new at the end of the Bible and so we're we're seeing here a glimpse of of, of new creation
2: moving into verse 19 in light of that because again, pay attention to words you talk about the importance of words says for in him, for this reason, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I should say, actually, that's the ground of what he was saying. How can Jesus be preeminent like this? He was a man because he's also God. And look at what Paul says. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. I mean, again, you can't have a stronger statement of the fact that this this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was also Fully, truly God in every way. Because the fullness of all that God is, the fullness, like you think of what makes God God, that's in Jesus. That's why He can be preeminent. That's why He can be the head. That's why He can be before all things. Because why? In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Um, Not only was this fullness pleased to dwell in Him, it also says, verse 20, that through Him. God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so the fullness of God was in Jesus for a reason. Yes, to just show the glory of God, to show you know, what it's like for, for, for God and man to be, to be one, just to show you know, God's glory, not just as the eternal son of God, but as the, the human son of God. Another purpose in that of Jesus being fully God is so, like we said earlier, so he can save us. Like if he's not fully God, he can't save us. And so he had to be fully God. He had to have the fullness of God in him in order to reconcile us to God. That was God's plan all along. Like the sacrificial system in Israel could never do it. Why? Because (coughs) the fullness of God could never dwell in a sacrificial animal. One, it didn't, it, 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 it wasn't. Um, made in the image of God Two, you know, it, it was, it was a finite, flawed creature. And so God needed someone like us, but also someone like him joined together in order for us to be brought back. It couldn't happen any other way. And so Jesus, as we've said in other places, he's the one who can come to us on behalf of God and can go to God on behalf of us all in the same person and we're reconciled. Reconciliation talks about restoring a friendship where there was hostility, there was enmity, there was strife. Jesus removes that. Not just our enmity against God, but God's right enmity and wrath against us. He removes it on, from both sides and that's why God is
0: reconciled to us and we are reconciled to God. Just bolstering that point, look at chapter two, verse, uh, verse nine. You can see the same idea here again, 2.9, for in Him, clearly Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That, that's all you need right there for the person of Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is truly, fully, completely uh, divine. G- going back to chapter 1, look at verse, uh, let me reread 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thoughts on these verses before we move on? Yeah, I I love the end of of verse 20.
3: Let me just, just read it again. Making peace by the blood of his cross, and this one commentator just pointed this out to me. He said, the grim reference to Christ's blood and cross brings us down from the lofty heights of preeminence and fullness to the depths of human pain and suffering. These two words are combined to express cost, and violence. Blood refers to death by violence. The cross refers to humility and shame. And I, I, I think this is the mercy of Jesus. Here, you're, you're, these incredible loss, and then all of a sudden, it's peaked by the blood of His cross. And uh, I remember I've told this, I think, in a congregational prayer. But I was watching a documentary called Apollo 11. Apollo 11. what you know about Apollo 11? This was the mission where we we landed on the moon. Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon. But they found this 70 millimeter footage uh, that they didn't know it was there, and it's They've transferred it to digital. It looks absolutely incredible. Of the launch of the Saturn V rocket, it looks amazing. I'm sitting there watching this thing and just stunned by it. 1969, you can see these guys in high def, and they take off, you know, this massive rocket. They're going to the moon, and I think I'm just reminded of the, the majesty of Jesus. Like, he's made it all. But as they were going around the dark side of the moon, I just thought, Jesus came, he came and saved us. And it was like the majesty and the mercy of Jesus ignited in my soul, just praised. And I think we gotta combine those two things. He is awesome in majesty, but then we remember he made peace by the blood of his cross and you combine the majesty and mercy of Jesus, it will stir the affections like, like nobody else. I mean, it's, it's fine to think of the majesty of Jesus, but don't forget the mercy. It's fine to think of the mercy, but don't forget the majesty because those two together, it's incredible. Well, let me just say to that, if, if you were in the position of Christ in
0: eternity, so you are supreme over everything. You're the creator. You made everything that exists. Everything that was ever created, you made. You made it all for your glory, and you are supreme over it. And then your creation also rebels against you. In how many of our stories would we end up on a cross? Like that, that's not how my story would end. My, my story ends with, all right, we'll start over. Let's just get rid of all these people and do something else. But in, in God's story, he creates all, he's supreme over all, and then he suffers more than all. He's on a cross. He's dying in place of us. So, th- just the contrast between supremacy and His death on the cross, so th- th- putting those two things together, th- that's a, a powerful thing.
1: It's good when you get to verse 21, and Scott, you had a great question that we'll talk about on the tables uh, here in a minute. But, and you who were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in the body of flesh. By his death scott in those questions you said why is it important that we really every once in a while go back to before we were justified there there's something about that we need to remember those days don't we
3: yes oh yeah def- definitely we we, we got to remember those days uh i think it's just uh, when you're going to preach the gospel to yourself, I just think you've got to think the whole picture. You've got to think of where where you were, and, and where Christ has brought you. I mean, it just it stirs to, to remember both both sides of it. Uh, we were utterly lost. The whole point of appreciating and how lost I once was. One commentator said is to realize the wonder of being found. And I, I go back to Vodi Bacham who, who gave a message on Psalm 51. I've gone back to it over and over again, at least in my mind. This portion of it where he talks about going home to South Central Los Angeles. He, he became a Christian as a freshman in college. He hadn't gone home, and he goes home, and he said he's driving around. He just he was reminded of all his sin, like of all his sin of his childhood. He said he had to go home, he had to go away in, in a corner. He said he had to weep by himself. But he, then he said, he said, you can't have the memory of my sin. He said, I won't let you take it. Why won't he let you take it? He said, because it reminds me of God's grace. My life. it reminds me of where I was, he said, where I never want to be again. He said, like, I'm not who I ought to be, but hallelujah, I'm not who I was. It's that, yeah, I can't even talk about it, but the combination of those two things. I mean, I think just regularly, what my life would have been like Christ not intervene. What well, my life is now, it just is such a good, healthy thing for the soul to stir affections for the Lord, to remember these things. And Paul loves to do this contrast. One come there said, and I just think we should cultivate this in our own lives. It's three startling terms. Alienated,
1: hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And no matter how, what kind of a nice guy or girl you were before, you became a believer. That's our description. That's who we were. We were hostile, we did not um, submit to his law. We couldn't submit to his law, we couldn't please him in any way. And the reconciliation that has now taken place through Christ is extraordinary. Any other thoughts on 21? How about 22,
2: Greg? 22, yes. Um, Look at the second half of the verse. It says, we've been reconciled, for what end? in order to, what, present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. God wants you to stand before Him holy and blameless, set apart, consecrated to Him with no charge of blame whatsoever. That's God's purpose in reconciling you to Himself through Christ. And again, only because of Christ can we have the hope of standing in the presence of God. Like everybody, so, I'm not gonna say everybody, but so many people out there, I mean, and we've said this before, you ask them, why would God let you into His heaven? Why would He let you stand before Him? You know, that is a good question to, to put before people if you don't know if they're a Christian. You know, if you were to die and, and go and stand before God and God asked you, why should you stand before me? A lot of people are not going to give the right answer to that. Well, I tried to live a good life, you know. uh, I kept five out of the Ten Commandments sometimes. um, You know, (coughs) they'll give all kinds of answers. But the only answer that is sufficient, the only way God is made is in Christ. Um, He is the one who makes us stand in the presence of God, holy and blameless, which means accepted. I think this might be an indirect way of getting a justification. Um, the, the perfect righteousness that we need in the presence of God is not going to be found in us, it's only going to be found outside of us in Christ. Um, and I think Paul might have that in the back of his mind, I can't say that for sure. But if we're going to stand in the presence of God above reproach, meaning there is no charge, no charge anyone can make against you. We can make a lot of charges against ourselves. Um, and other people could too, but if we're gonna stand before God and not have any charge made against us, the only way we're gonna do that is if we stand in Christ because all the charges were put on him and he took every last penalty, every last punishment on the cross that we deserved so that when we're before God, we don't have to fear something being brought out that we didn't think about, oh, I missed that one, I just lost my eternal life.
1: It It can't happen if your hope's in Jesus. Mark, can you finish this off here before we um, gather around the tables?
0: Yes. Verse uh, 23, he says, so we will stand blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is identical to 1 Corinthians 15, when he says, if you, if you have not believed in vain. And so again here, the, the final sign of conversion, of course we can have assurance in the here and now, but the final ultimate sign of assurance is that we stay trusting Christ to the day that we die. Jesus said those who endure to the end will be saved and no one else. We believe in the perseverance of the saints, that God preserves His own. If we are truly born again, we will consist, we will persist in our walk with Christ, not perfectly, but truly throughout the rest of our life. We will never shift away from the Gospel, and we will finally die in Christ if we truly know Him. Those who turn away from the Gospel did not truly know Christ. As 1 John 2 says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. Had they been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So those who are true persevere. Those who are not true do not persevere, and that's why Paul adds this. If the Colossians veer off with this error and they go down this road, they will not be shown to be Christians. But if they are true Christians, they will finally reject this error about Christ, and they will accept the true Christ and, and, and walk with Him until the very end. Good.
1: Scott, can you close this? To any final thoughts and then the break? Yeah, no, we,
3: we can pray. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, what an incredible passage of Scripture uh, that we just got to barely sort of dip our toes into, this incredible passage of Scripture. Uh, help us to remember the, the majesty of Jesus. He's, he's created everything, the, the largest star to the tiniest insect. It has a tag on it, made by Jesus. Help us not to lose sight of the majesty of Jesus, to remember who He is. But help us also remember the mercy of Jesus, making peace by the blood of his cross. What staggering humility. And Father, help us to remember our, our conversion. Help us remember what we were and not what we now are by your grace. I do pray that these, these times at the tables would be edifying and fruitful, uh, that it would be mutually encouraging to everyone's faith here, and it just would be just a sweet time as we discuss more uh, some questions containing uh, about these passages in Colossians 1. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we've got about three minutes, four minutes, and then we will start our
0: discussion at the tables. Thank you, guys.